Hey there, and thanks for tuning in. I've added this note to the beginning of my most recent and highest downloaded episodes to let you know of a few changes and hopefully avoid any confusion for you as listeners. You will hear me call the show Life After Business as well as reference various ventures I've been a part of over the years. When I started the show, I originally named it Life After Business because I was on a mission to learn everything I wish I would have known before we sold our family business back in 2014. And after 200 episodes and Tons of information that I've learned. I finally decided to change the name to better reflect me, the content, and the guests. One of the biggest lessons I've learned is business owners and entrepreneurs who were the happiest and most successful, in my mind, didn't focus only on sucking all the cash out of the company, and they knew the business was going to eventually continue on without them at some point in time. They literally knew exactly what they wanted from their business long term and why. They intentionally focused on building a valuable company so they could have the freedom of choices to do what they wanted from the business. So they focused on strategies that would grow value long term and give them the freedom to choose. You can learn more about the name change, my major lessons, and our definition of intentional growth in episode 200. Enjoy the episode that you're listening to right now, and thanks for being a listener. Welcome to Life After Business, the podcast that helps you understand what your company is worth and what your exit options are. Host Ryan Tansom and his guests give you all the information you need to get clarity and control over your business, build a valuable company to be proud of, and exit on your terms. Hey, everybody, and welcome back to the Life After Business podcast. This is episode 170, and today's guest name is Sonny Vanderbeck, and he's on the show today to share with us his wild, crazy ride as an entrepreneur and now a private equity investor. Sonny co-founded a company called Data Return, and he was one of the leading providers of managed services and utility computing, and he was the CEO for 11 years, where he led through all phases of growth and transformation, and the company sustained 40% quarter over quarter growth and reached 50 million in revenue. And he successfully led an IPO and achieved a market cap of $3 billion. And the crazy part about Sonny's story is he was really close to locking in his sale to Compaq, which was his favorite buyer of all time strategically and for legacy purposes, all until the last second when Compaq ended up selling to HP and the deal was off the table within 24 hours. So he turned around, sold the business. It ended up being a train wreck. He ended up going back and buying it back again, growing it up and selling it. And Sonny learned so much financially, emotionally, and all the experience that he got with that. He ended up just writing a book that just got released called Selling Without Selling Out. How to Sell Your Business Without Selling Your Soul. And if you're one of my avid listeners, you're going to realize how applicable that title is to the purpose of this podcast because Sonny realized that the business is so ingrained in who you are and your legacy, which is why he actually started Satori Capital and co-founded Satori Capital where they are a long-term conscious capitalist private equity firm which if you just think about all the things that I talk about in the show from Simon Sinek's Infinite Game, Conscious Capitalism, the transition of boomers who are looking for people to help carry on their legacy, Sonny covers it all in his book and in this podcast. So what you're going to learn in this podcast is how to determine what's important to you when you sell a business and what you should look for in a buyer, how to make a list of who you care about and how you should figure out what you want to do with them in any sort of exit, something that's called the one-year trap that I think a lot of entrepreneurs get stuck into, how the same things that make your company more valuable make it more transferable, ways to ask yourself a question 
the question, a really crucial question is at five o'clock, what are your employees' mindset and how does that impact your culture and your business and your legacy? How the moment you decide to sell to a third party and take it to market, your business to market, that the entire process is optimized for two things, the highest price and the highest probability to close and how that might have an enormous impact and make you make a decision that you completely regret and how to avoid that. This is one of my favorite podcast episodes because Sonny has been there, done it, had really good experiences, had a complete train wreck. He's taken it all and he's applying it to private equity and helping people transition their legacies. And he's now writing books and being on podcasts like this to help spread the word that it's not just about the money, it's about your legacy, conscious capitalism, and how to tie it all together. And these are the things to think about if you're anywhere in line of trying to sell your business or exit within the next one to five years. With that being said, if you want to get educated and really roll up your sleeves to learn this and take control over the next stage of your company, check out our Growth and Exit Boot Camps. They're two days. We have an enormous amount of material that we go through how to determine what you want, what are the different ways a company is valued, how to calculate net proceeds, how to calculate the financial targets, how all the different exit options work from private equity to ESOPs, internal transitions, ways to maximize the value of the business and increase your multiple, and then how to hire your team of advisors. So if you want to go get your ultimate exit like Sunny talks about, even if it's five years out, this is the way to do it. It's two days and it'll change your life. Check out our boot camps. It's arcona.io and we'll have a bunch of information about the boot camps. So with that being said, I really hope you enjoyed this interview with Sunny Vanderbeck. Sponsored by Arcona's Growth and Exit Boot Camps. Three days jam-packed with material on the five growth and exit principles and the world of mergers and acquisitions. You'll walk away knowing exactly what steps to take to get your target valuation and your best exit option. Three days at Arcona's Boot Camp will give you the clarity to control the rest of the journey. Good morning, Sonny. How you doing? Good morning. Doing great. Uh, so I am super excited for this interview because we got introduced to Dan Golden and um, I actually just interviewed Dan Golden and Alexander on the podcast from Conscious Capitalism, kind of talking about what they're doing and why. And here you are bringing some real meat to the bone. And Alexander was like, just defer that to Sonny. <laughs> so um, Great. I'm excited. And you, you just got done. And actually today, so it's the day of the recording, your book goes live. Um, obviously, it'll be a couple weeks um, until it's actually out. But we're going to be diving into your book, your experience, what you're doing now. Um, so maybe give some context, Sonny, for the listeners as far as like, you know, the kind of the cliff notes of how you became an entrepreneur and you got kind of a couple of the milestones and then we can dive in deep in different parts of that um, once they've got some context. So how did you become an entrepreneur and then what are you doing today? Sure. So uh, backstory, in my early 20s, I was at Microsoft and in 1996 had this crazy idea that someday people were going to buy things on the internet and the companies would need help doing that. Um, so we, you know, had started a company um, with a MasterCard. Basically, we didn't have venture funding or anything like that um, and, and had a really good run at it. We grew at 40% every quarter for three and a half years, took it public on the NASDAQ, um, <laughs> went through you know, lots of, of drama um, through 2000 and 2001, um, almost, almost sold the company to an extraordinary buyer that didn't happen, fell apart, ended up selling it to... Um, what not to be not a great acquire, um, and I learned lots of tough lessons there. Um, about a year later, that acquire filed for bankruptcy, and so we got a second shot at it. 
Um, you don't usually get a mulligan at your your own company, um, but in this case, I got lucky and I did. And so we we bought it back um, and ran it for another four years. And then the second time we sold it, it got a much much better outcome um, for all of our stakeholders. Um, after that, I didn't stay on with the company. We we sold it to. I ended up starting um, with a, a longtime friend and, and CEO, a firm called Satori Capital, um, that invests in mid-sized companies um, and helps them be the best versions of themselves. And so I've spent the last now now decade helping other entrepreneurs, um, typically companies that are between 100 and 1,000 employees, get their companies where, where they want to go and provide them some liquidity along the way. And through that, I sort of had this realization that Nobody was talking about the non-financial parts of the sale, right? Mm-hmm. It was just kind of left to the side. And as I started to dig into what was the difference between a good outcome and a bad outcome, really, I just started to explore that and think about that, both in my own experience and talk to other CEOs. And then surprise, you, you're an author. And, and now I have a book um, <laughs> and I've spent quite a bit of time. You know, I, I never thought I'd be an author, but it needed to be talked about. There's a lot of lives at stake. Um, when these transactions happen or these investments are made. And so um, it kind of had to be done. Like, like most entrepreneurial ventures, you know, people go, hey, how do you know, you know it was time to start Data Return, your first business, or it was time to start Satori? More in this case to write the book, because I couldn't help it. It just becomes consuming. You wake up every day and you go, I can't help this. It's all I can think about. So I have to go do it. So, so I think starting the, the book um, was much like starting an, another company. I just, it had to be done. You birthed your idea. <laughs> it had to be put into yes. paper. Let's, and uh, give the name of the book because um, I think it says a lot. Selling Without Selling Out, How to Sell Your Business Without Selling Your Soul. And that is going to be a lot of what we're talking about. And, and you know, what I think about Sonny is, you know, because I'm open to kind of uh, juking and jiving that feels the best for you is, you know, instead of going through like, you know, play by play of your growth, sale, purchase, sale, et cetera, Maybe we take some of the lessons that you have throughout the book and then we can relate them to the stories because I think they're, they're probably all intertwined unless you want to give the kind of the play-by-play of the, the sale first. I mean, what, what, what would work best for you? Um, yeah, so I think we can get to some of the play-by-plays um, as we go through it, but, but I'll start with like what, what's the big idea or a couple of big ideas because I think it's, it's it'll idea. be more useful yep. if we get in the story. So, um, so here's the first one. The way this whole thing is set up, the process is generally designed to optimize for two things, the most amount of money and the highest probability of close. And here's what that means. The process doesn't care about you. It doesn't care about your team. doesn't care about your customers. doesn't care about your suppliers or your community. doesn't care about anything but the most money and the highest probability of close. But my own experience and, and from talking to other entrepreneurs, their experience was they actually do care about other things than just money. Um, and I got a quick way to figure it out, by the way, like is, Hey, what, I don't really know what I care about. Do I care about more than money? Imagine for just a minute that you have an acquirer or an investor. Um, and what they tell you is, Hey, look, we've, we've changed our mind on how we want to do this deal. And so what we're going to do is we're going to fire everybody on the day we close. And just shut the business down. We don't really want it to exist. So we're just going to shut it down. How much more did they have to pay? Figure out what your number is. Like, and so the funny thing was, I got two answers every time I asked that question. 
One answer was, that will never happen. Get out of my office. And the second answer was some number that was big enough that they could basically give everybody that was on the team so much money that it didn't matter. Um, and so <laughs> yeah. what was really behind that was like just a simple thing of, you know, I actually do care about something besides money. Mm-hmm. Cause if the answer is, well, if the acquirer paid me another million dollars, they can do whatever they want with it. They bought it. I don't care if they get rid of everybody, then you probably shouldn't read my book. Cause it's not for you. <laughs> yeah. um, you. You're out there. It's cool. I got no judgment on what you care about, but you actually do have to figure out what you care about. So that's the second piece, right? First piece is the system is designed to not care about you or anything you care about. The system's designed to generate money and you've got to go in eyes wide open about how all these advisors and what their job is. Their job is not to make you happy. Their job is not for you to feel good about things a decade later. Their job is to get you paid so that they can get paid. They don't get paid more if you feel better. They don't get paid more based on what happens a decade later. They only get paid more based on more money, which means they're going to have bias in the process towards mm-hmm. those things. Just be super aware of that's the reality of, of the thing. The second thing is, though, okay, look, I care about more than money. Or as we talk about in the book, price is not the only thing that matters. But it's important, to be clear. It's, it's not irrelevant. It is important. But there are other things, too. What are those? Like, I can't tell you what you should care about. Only you can tell you what you should care about. But you actually do have to get clear on it. Um, so and so true. there's a way to do that that's, that's pretty straightforward. You make a list of who cares about the company, right? We, we use the term stakeholders. And so that's things like customers and employees, maybe the community that you're in, your suppliers. Some businesses have you know, multiple um, parts of stakeholders, like the healthcare business. You've got both referrers and patients and payers. Just mm-hmm. figure out the list of um, who cares? And I've actually got some tools for this on my website as well at sonnyvanderbeck.com that'll help out. So figure out who cares about the business. And that's your starting place to figure out, okay, well, who do, who do you care about? And then what do you want for them? So you've got this list of people that uh, the business matters to. And then just figure out what you want for them. So for example, in the second time I sold my business, one of the things I cared about for my team was opportunity for advancement. If they were part of a larger company, that was also to some degree values aligned. And it'll never be perfect, but at least to some degree values aligned, they would have lots of opportunities for advancement. And so in this case, many of my team got promoted shortly after That's awesome. yeah. um, the company was acquired. And so they, instead of being the you know, vice president of sales for our company, they were the vice president of sales for the combined businesses, which mm-hmm. were much, much larger. So... So that, as an example, on the employee side, I wanted them to go into a solid culture and I wanted them to have opportunities for advancement. So we had clarity on what do I want for them? And you just work that process all the way down. What do I want for customers? What do I want for suppliers and so forth? And that lets you begin to get a sense for, like, what do you care about? Mm -hmm. Some advice on that, though, my own experience, and and I've heard this over and over again from other entrepreneurs, often you've got to put what you need and what your family needs to the back for years. Just part of the deal. It's hard. A lot of late nights, a lot of sacrifice, and that's fine. And so we don't usually have a good sense for figuring out what it is we want for ourselves. There is no better time to be real honest with yourself about 
Like, what do you actually want? So it's okay for you to want things for your stakeholders and it's okay for you to be clear about what it is that you want out of this. And the second piece of advice, make sure your family is a stakeholder too. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's often good, good. They, right, they, they've sacrificed and they've been, you know, second fiddle to building this business. And so be clear about what you want for them because this is going to have an effect on them. You, you, there's no way to have a meaningful transaction like this where you sell your company or take on a big financial investor and not have an effect on your family. So just be clear about what you want. But even in, you know, to, to even expand on that, Sonny, is it's going to affect your family at the bare minimum based on how you're reacting and engaging afterwards, like as an individual, because you can change. <laughs> so like that, even if outside of the money and everything like that, it's just you being aware of the stuff will, is important for your family. Yeah, that's a great point. Even just you being miserable every day because you feel like you would have done things differently because it didn't yep. turn out well. Yep. That everybody knows that shows up. <laughs> yep. Um, yep. Or so, so here, let me give you an example, sort of real world example. So let's say you've got this great opportunity in front of you with a strategic acquirer and they're a great culture fit and all your stakeholders are being taken care of and so on and so forth. But headquarters is on the other coast. And your new job is going to be to run the business you used to run plus some other stuff. And to do that effectively, you're going to need to be at headquarters a lot. And so in your old world, you traveled one or two times a month for a day or two. And in your new world, every week, you're going to spend three days a week on the other coast. That actually has a meaningful effect on your family, right? You go from being mostly home to mostly not during the week. Yep. Yep. What do you do with that? I'm not saying don't do it. Just eyes wide open. Like, here are the impacts this is going to have on the stakeholder. What does that mean to me? How am I going to prioritize that over other things, et cetera? And, and one just comment, it is difficult to find a perfect outcome. Um, you know, as an entrepreneur, it's, we often set these sort of expectations of um, absolute perfection, and we're going to work the system until we get everything we want. Um, my advice is, is, is be realistic. Everything's not going to be exactly the way you want it. I want Even all my, my all my money up front. Everybody to keep their jobs. I want to have. I want to be able to walk away and play. I mean, like I, I literally have had something where people go, "I want all that," <laughs> and it's yeah. like I, I agree. But you, you're going to have to understand how to weigh these variables against each other. And like if you you know. Because I want, you know, when you and I first started talking, you know, I, I would, you and I have had similar experiences as far as like not understanding because it was mine was a strategic acquirer too. great people, but just the nature of the deal. I learned all the stuff that you're talking about after the fact. And I don't know if, we, if we've talked about Bo Burlingham, he talks about like 75% of owners are, you know, unhappy 12 months later because they didn't know this stuff. Right. So you end up like having to make these decisions at the end of the line where there's the deal train's gone, the momentum's there, you're sitting and this is the terms and conditions stuff that you just don't know. Get, what, where can you give a, like a couple of examples from your story? How did you learn this stuff? Cause I can tell that you've, you've got deep passion about it in your voice because it's a personal experience. So maybe kind of give some color of how you learn these things. Yeah. Um, so the how was definitely at least started off with getting it wrong. Like there's, there's no lesson like the one where you get kicked really hard in the ribs um, to help you remember, 
hey, that that was not great. And so some examples come to mind um, in a lot of strategic transactions, um, your sales team is going to move to not be a direct report to you, right? If they run with, with sales is sort of unified across the business, mm-hmm. which by the way, actually makes a lot of sense. Um, but you go pretty quickly from kind of being responsible for everything and having lots of knobs and dials to accomplish the outcome to, well, sales doesn't report to you. Marketing doesn't report to you and HR doesn't report to you anymore either. Um, so imagine if you're trying to build and keep a great culture and you at best have influence over a marginal HR team that's a thousand miles away that doesn't care about you or your employees. And so this sort of ridiculous HR stuff rolls downhill. This this happened to me multiple times. Just this sort of ridiculous nonsense, corporate nonsense rolls downhill and your team's looking at you like, what, what is this? How did this happen? You're like, I don't know. They didn't even tell me. So I got to find out about HR changes that, that would have been material to me. And prior to selling, I would have spent a decent amount of time sort of figuring out, okay, what's the right way to do this for the team. I got to read about them in the email that everybody else got at the same time, because that part of culture wasn't a priority for the acquirer. I just didn't know to ask, right? It was, the answers are in front of you. So, so here's another like piece on this. All of these answers are there and available for you if you go ask, but you've got to ask uncomfortable questions, right? If you're not asking questions that make you feel a little weird when you ask them and make the room kind of look a little weird. And if you've got an investment banker or some sort of advisor in the mix, like they give you a talking to after, that's what you really want, by the way. You know, you're asking these <laughs> yes, questions. If right. somebody pulls you aside later and is like, what are you hey, doing? <laughs> hey, you can't ask questions like that. Those are dangerous. You're like, that's exactly why I'm asking. Mm-hmm. And you ask crazy questions like, what are you going to do with it? Like literally like show me what, like how, where are people going to report? How are they going to be measured? What's success like? Just big open-ended questions. How about why are you buying this? Like, how does this fit in your strategy? What, what is it about this that fits in your strategy and how do we know if we're going to be successful? And so you ask these big open-ended questions, but you can't take the first answer. The quick kind of paragraph, everything's going to be awesome answer. Like, <laughs> y'all know you how to are, see You're going to have better jobs right? and as good people. Trust me, you're going to have a bigger budget. <laughs> Just all the same stuff. Yeah, I don't, I don't want to hear that. Like, be real, really specific, um, including, and I'm not, I'm not kidding. This is a very specific piece of advice on, on my end. Get out the org chart. And show me where all these people are going to report to and who's not going to make it through the transaction. Yep. Be clear about that. And so here's an example of where one of these things can catch you unawares. One of the CEOs I interviewed for the book sold his company. He had a software business and technology business. He sold it to another acquirer or sold it to an acquirer and he had a big earn out. And by the way, earnouts are not good or bad. More cash at close is not good or bad. But if you're going to have an earn out, got to really understand how it works. And this story will explain why the missing question made all the difference in the world. So they do the acquisition. And basically what happened was the acquirer took all of his salespeople that he was going to use to make his earn out and moved them to corporate sales, which that in and of itself is okay, fine so far. 
and then change their comp plan such that their incentive was to sell all the company's products. And so now his sales force isn't producing directly for his business. So there's no way he can make his earn out. So he didn't make his earn out because of an organizational change, right? If those people still reported to him, he'd be fine. If they hadn't changed their quota, it'd be fine. There's a bunch of ways to make it work. But in this case, he didn't, his earn out was not trivial um, and could have worked well, but for the one change, he didn't ask, where's everybody going to report on the org chart? Because if you see it going to corporate, you go, well, wait, wait a minute. We, we got to talk about quotas and success for my sales team because if you're going to make them sell a bunch of other stuff, I don't know how to make this earn out. So it's, it's in this next level of detail in these questions that, that you'll find important answers. And oh, by the way, in this particular case, after all this happened, Kevin ended up talking to some of the other companies that had been acquired. The, the CEOs and founders of those. And what he found was they did it to everybody. It was actually part of their playbook was to, to agree to a big earn out. Yeah, agree to a big earn out so that you think you're getting X and then move the sales team around and not have to pay it. You know, it's really cool. And that so, was just their playbook. Well, and, and I know, and it's interesting. Well, first of all, in your book, you call it reverse due diligence. And you, you made a good point already that it's like people feel uncomfortable asking this stuff because investment banker wants a deal to get done, attorney, CPA, everybody wants to get the deal done. But like, this is such important stuff that like you have the ability to do due diligence on them. And I interviewed this one gentleman. He was like, he goes, the reality is, man, if you built a good company, you have the cash flow that they want. So you deserve those answers. And if they don't have them, that means they haven't done their strategic plan of why they're even acquiring you. Yeah. Yeah, it's, you know, it's funny. It's back to my point about getting a bit of a talking to. Like, no one wants you to ask those questions because those questions might lead you to say, I'm not working with that acquirer. <laughs> right. Take them off the list. Yeah. Like, this happened to me. So, so again, we're, we're investors and owners of these mid-sized companies. Um, we had one company in our portfolio as a 50-year-old family-run business. Um, dad started it. His, one of his sons was running it. His two sons were working in the business. Largest employer in a small town. Right? So you got a lot at stake when you're the biggest employer in a small town. Yep. Um, and, and arguably, same size company, a big town, there's no less at stake, but it's really easy to see in a small town mm-hmm. right? because the town's very reliant on it. So I was at a conference, um, kind of an investment conference for the industry that this company was in. And I had one of the, the big companies in the space say, hey, let's get together. We should talk. You know, I know you're an investor in this company and we might be interested in acquiring it. And I'm, you know, generally my advice is like, I'll always take a meeting, um, but I'm going to ask a lot of questions and I'm going to listen a lot. I may not say much. Um, and in this case, I ask the, so like, what are you going to do with it? Just tell me what's on your mind. Why? Um, these, these crazy questions, not how much, but, but why and, and what's the plan? Um, and they said, you know, well, we just think there's too much capacity in the industry. And so really, like, we've got a plant nearby. <laughs> and so I think we're just going to shut the plant down. I'm like, huh, well, that's interesting. You know, I'm like trying really hard to not respond. And just kind of <laughs> let on. Biting your lip. Um, oh, yeah. And it was one of those moments, you have those experiences in life where, like you remember what you were wearing and where you were sitting and like what the weather was like. Cause it's just anchored in your mind. This is one yeah. of those for me. And then they went on, they kept going. It was, if that wasn't enough, they were like, you know, no, you're thinking about it. Like, like we're kind of good on management teams. So we don't actually need any of the leadership team. 
either. And so just for asking, they told me, they're like, hey, we're going to basically shut the whole thing down and it will have, it will cease to exist and be gone forever. Did he, oh, have you read your right, website cool. at all? <laughs> like, yeah, right. No, <laughs> apparently not. Because if you spent like one second minutes, on the homepage, not even the 10 minutes, the homepage. So for, <laughs> yeah, fair enough. Like, like front and center of the Satori Capital website is like, tells you like, don't like at least try to lie to me. <laughs> so like, I'll catch the, you, but at least try. Can you, for the listeners, um, Sonny, explain to why, why it was like, cause like, with the conscious capitalism, like in, in like, and it's so ingrained probably that you, you probably don't even think to think about it, but like, you know, the, the conscious capitalism MO, right. And what you're talking about with the stakeholders, cause they got the wind of the six, six power and conscious capitalism. So like, how did you land on that? And like explain your model and how that impacts it, why it would have upset you so much and how, cause I think it ties everything we've been talking about together. Yeah. And so, so one of the titles I probably could have ended up with for the book um, was something like how to sell a conscious business, because a lot of the ideas carry from conscious capitalism mm-hmm. into this, this sales process like stakeholders or, or like purpose that I, I'd love to get to later in this conversation. Yep. Um, but the, the essence of the thing is like on the front page of our website, it's really clear that as we think about businesses, we don't think about them like ATMs. It's not a thing you put money in and money comes out of. Um, businesses matter a lot to the state of the world. Um, how a company treats its stakeholders matters a lot. And we think that profit is actually not a thing to pursue directly. Profit is a reflection of how good of a job you can do for your customers and your employees and your suppliers and all of these, these stakeholders. And so and on top of that, we've got, which is unique for a lot of investment funds, we've got an indefinite time horizon. Um, so we don't have to sell. And so we're really clear on our strategy. Like we're trying to help these companies be the best versions of themselves. And it's right there on the front of the website. Um, so yeah, if you had read that, it, it might've got your attention to say, you know, we should be a little more measured in our commentary. And so we actually think that business can change the world. And we think that the way somebody experiences their work life has an effect on their home life and so on and so forth. And so, so we take this pretty seriously about um, what happens to these businesses and why and where. And, and the funny thing is we don't in any way think any of this is a trade-off or this is not corporate social responsibility or ESG where I'm sort of sacrificing profit to do good in the world, or we should feel guilty about being in business. So we have to go do these other things. Uh, Our belief is the healthiest version of a business is one that does all of these things and they get the best outcomes. Like we're find me the business, um, assuming it's, you know, big enough to be profitable and have a real business that customers love it and are super excited about it. And if you've heard a net promoter score, maybe they have a high net promoter score mm-hmm. and company or, and employees love to work there and it's the best place to work. And suppliers absolutely love working with the company and they do a bunch in the community. Where is that company that's not doing extraordinarily well for its shareholders too? Right. Right. It, but you always see those things together. And, and you know what's Sonny? Like if you can, because like when I was talking to Dan and Alexander and like, I, I think there's a lot of these correlations between founders and, you know, probably these family, you know, multiple generation families businesses that you're working with where like, you know, if you've been in business long enough and you're a good person, I think 
a privately held founder knows that, right? You have to treat everybody well to be in business. Otherwise you will get gobbled up when you're that small, right? I mean, you, you have to like, I think about the one story that my dad taught me when I was like 12, like they were broke. Um, God, they were like, this was back when they were only like 5 million bucks in revenue. And they had to absorb like a quarter million dollars worth of gear because it was like the wrong order. And it was just like, they just did it. And he was like, and they were a 17 year customer because of that. But like that impacts the quarterly reports. If you're, if you're going short term versus long term. Well, I think a lot of owners just know that it's a, they have to sleep at night and they have to, they're thinking more long-term versus the quarterly reports. So explain the dynamic or what, what your thoughts are on that. Because I think when you're solving for the wrong thing, you know, it naturally happens. Yeah. So, so that's the thing is it's conscious capitalism. Um, th- there are lots of flavors of it. There are lots of what, what I call unconscious conscious capitalists that, mm-hmm. that do the behavior. They just don't have the words for it. Um, I believe that the only rational conclusion, if you have a long enough time horizon, is this same set of behavior that we call conscious capitalism, right? If you've got a short-term time horizon, hey, we're going to buy this company and flip it like a baseball card, it it doesn't make any sense. Um, But if your view is, no, we're owners of the company, we'll have it as long as we have it, and our time horizon's indefinite, your time horizon's indefinite, then you want to take care of your customers where you can. You want to think about the, not just the letter of the contract, but the spirit of the contract. Um, you want to think about what's it like to be on the team, right? Of, you know, what I can get away with is not what's important. What's the right thing to do is what's important. And so for, for those of us with longer time horizons, um, it's obvious to make that call with a customer to just eat the gear. Hey, it was your problem. You ate it, but in general, people remember that. So, so I got a story from the book um, that I think is is relevant to understanding how all these pieces fit together. So there, there was a company we were talking to, and they were a distribution business. So they had a big, big warehouse and, and a lot of people that worked in the warehouse. And um, there's a guy that worked in the warehouse that was from Bosnia, and he left in the middle of the conflict in the 90s. So you can imagine your country's being torn apart and you get out before it gets bad. So he'd been in the States for 20 years and had never been back to see his family. Right. I was just going to say. Yeah. Right. He's hourly worker in the warehouse. He's saving up and saving up. And he finally saves enough money to take out two weeks off. And the CEO gets wind of this guy taking two weeks off and calls him into our office. And you can imagine this poor guy is, you know, shaking in his boots. He's like, God, a CEO call me. I'm going to get fired. Like that was what was really on his mind. Like I'm about to get fired for taking two weeks off, but I have to go do it. I have to go see my family. It's been too long. Called him into our office. You know, I understand you're taking two weeks off and you're going to Bosnia. And he's like, uh, yes, kind of quaking in his boots. He's like, yes, ma'am. She reaches into her drawer, pulls out an envelope, hands him an envelope with two weeks of pay in it and says, Go enjoy your time with your family. We can't wait to have you back. But while you're gone, stay focused on your family. It's just now, like just that story. That. I was just gonna say, doesn't that just like it makes you feel good because <laughs> that's the right thing? To, it's so awesome. Yeah. So you know, you get these sort of win-win outcomes where yeah, does it feel good? Yeah. Is that a good enough reason to do it? Probably not. But like, follow that downstream. If People that work at the company believe the company has their back. 
and is watching out for them. That works both ways. So what happens when it's five o'clock and it's time to go home, but there's still a customer order sitting on the dock that's not out yet? You nailed it. You nailed what, it. Yeah. At some companies, that customer order is going to sit there till tomorrow because five o'clock, time to go home. And in fact, if, frankly, if, at if they stay, I was just going to say, if they, if they stayed till five, right? <laughs> All right. Um, and so you get one company that is at four thirty, like work kind of grinds to a halt and no one's really thinking about customers or just thinking about themselves. And the other company, it's like, well, our customers are relying on us to get this done. The company takes care of me when I need it. I'm going to take care of the company and its customers when they need it. And so it's not even, my experience has been the, Hey, are we going to stay around and get this order out? Isn't even a conscious decision. It's more like a, a well, of course I would do that. Right. And so, so you end up with more trust, more productivity, more employee referrals for your next employee, more benefit of the doubt. Like every CEO will trip over their own feet at some point. And so the question is, do you have enough trust with your team that they'll give you the benefit of the doubt on that? Well, it's so, it's it kind of so depends it, on how you behave the last decade. Right. <laughs> It's, it's so interesting, Simon, because you, if you tie this together, I don't know if you saw Simon Sinek's got a new book out coming uh, coming out called uh, The Infinite Game. So you tie like conscious yeah. capitalism, you know, I've, I've been talking a lot about ESOPs on the show, Jack Stack was on the show, mm-hmm. and then you got um, his start with why all this stuff, it's all kind of the same stuff as good people, good things over the long period, you will prevail. And by the way, everybody wants to be a part of that. And it's just, it's so interesting because I, I want to make sure I put a note, you know, going back to that purpose that you had mentioned. But like, I think about like the real people that are in that Bo Burlingham stat of 75% of the people that are un- unhappy 12 months later is they lived like this for decades. And then they had no idea that there was a possibility of having a company that doesn't do that. And then it just, it's like ripping out your soul. Like, I mean, no, no pun intended because that's your book, right? I mean, it's like, and you're so yeah. unaware of it because of like, you know, you just built this culture like that. And then you just realize that, like you said, everybody else is playing a game of what can I get away with? And it's just, so how does that tie into the purpose and what, you know, as people are thinking about this and what the purpose of their business is and or I mean, what is your definition of purpose and how does it fit into all of this? Yeah, so... So the idea of purpose for me is the non-financial reason for existence, right? Business is more than just an ATM. Um, the, the idea of business is entirely a financial thing um, is kind of a recent thing in history, right? 500 years of, of sort of what might be considered to be a business beyond a few people and, and this short-term mindedness and, hey, it's just for money and the only reason it exists is for shareholders and all that's kind of recent, um, and it doesn't actually reflect reality. Now, it reflects reality when the owners of the company are widely dispersed and you sort of lose that um, founder or family touch, but that doesn't have to happen. And, and one of the ways um, to keep that from happening is to keep close to the purpose. Like, why does this thing exist? Um, and it doesn't have to be, oh, I'm going to change the world. Like, that's cool if it's, that's what you're really doing. Um, but it, it can also be, I've got a friend with a manufacturing business 
that when he, he spent a good bit of time on purpose trying to figure out, he's like, look, we do injection molding. Like purpose? Like how does it, we do injection molding? That's what we do. He spent a couple years working on it. He decided it was important to him, so he kept pushing and kept pushing. And at the end of it, here's where he came out. His realization was that the purpose of that business was to enrich the lives of his employees. Oh, huh, that's interesting. Well, as it turns out, it's one of the bigger employers in a small town. Not a lot of job prospects in this town. And he had built a business where he had lots of training and development and coaching and could take people who historically had a tough time in their life and give them the opportunity to win and learn and make progress and feel good about their contribution to the world. Um, and, and not as a matter of, of altruism. That's just the system he built in his business. That was a side effect of how his business worked. And so he realized as he went through his stakeholders and what he wanted to see for all the stakeholders for him. And look, if you're the owner, you get to decide what the purpose is. Enriching the lives of the employees was actually the reason that business existed. How cool mm -hmm. was that? Mm -hmm. So here's where this comes into the idea of a sale process or an investment. So you're going to have all these wants and needs, right? You've gotten clear about what you want for you and your family and all your stakeholders. Now I add purpose to that. The why does this business exist? And when that, those sort of sets of needs and wants and desires meet the world, you're probably not going to get that. Like just to be blunt, you'll get close if you work at it, but you can't expect perfect. It, it happens sometimes, you know, on our first sale, we actually like legit had perfect and the, the sale didn't happen. That's its, its own long story that I'll, I'll cover in the book. Um, personal moment of drama in my life for sure. But, but the point being like, you have to be clear about what's most important to you across these things, because you may have to make some trade-offs. Um, and so if you know that the purpose of your business is to enrich the lives of your employees, that that's the main reason this business exists, then the decision about which acquire or which investor should be guided by that. So mm -hmm. as an example, if you have an acquirer who their view is, look, we need this capability. We want X. Here's how our culture works. We also grow and develop our people. We want to take some of the people from this plant and move them to another plant so they can help us make that one run better. And, like, and what you see in the transaction is um, lots of opportunity for growth and development and advancement for your team. Then maybe you prioritize that over your suppliers. Maybe mm -hmm. your outcome is, look, I'm not going to get what I want from my suppliers in this, but I am going to get what I want from my employees. Or maybe your purpose is around, you know, bringing some new product to the world. You're trying to help the world eat healthier or whatever it happens to be. It's a customer focused purpose. You get this customer focused purpose and you say, okay, some of my stakeholders, I'm getting what I want. Some of them I'm not. But right now, we put our product in the hands of 10,000 new people a year. And our purpose is very centered and focused around that. And if I do this transaction, I'm going to put it in the hands of a million people a year. What are you willing to trade to put your product in the hands of a million people a year instead of 10,000 a year? Mm. Like, I, I'm not going to make that call for you. Yes. But that, like, that's a real decision to say, okay, how do I prioritize these things? And, and these are decisions that only a CEO can make because they're personal like only the founder can make. Yeah. Well, it, it's so interesting, Sonny. And I'm, and I'm so 
without going too much into ours, like we are, we have our five principles, which our first one is your drivers, which is a way like literally to assess. I'd be curious to what your tool looks like to assess what you want in this. And then you layer on your financial targets. Then you layer on your exit options. Then you layer on your value building strategies. And then you layer on your team of advisors. And it's like this sequential way of figuring this out. But like, I, I've been, I'm curious on your thoughts because in the book, you called it the one year trap. And this is just a personal experience that I've had. Cause like, I think about you and I who have gone through this, right. And you look at you, you can't help but look at the business or the world differently and or business, right. Cause you just, you realize all these things that were important to you. You didn't, you didn't think to ask them, right. Or it just happens <laughs> afterwards. <laughs> like, like, you just like, Oh, this is going to be awesome. Yeah. Like they were like, Hey Ryan, you can be an awesome sales guy for us and you can help us take this to the next level. And it's like, Oh sweet. And you get in there like, what in the hell? <laughs> and so like, Surprise, like you said, so the thing that is literally driving me to insanity is okay, so it goes back to your one year. So like I we're doing these boot camps, these two-day boot camps to teach owners and educate them on how to do all this stuff. And I've we, we've been doing our marketing, digital marketing, the you know, the the sales calls, and everybody says, I'm not planning on selling yet. And I'm like, I literally said in our material, this is not about selling today. And then everybody has their head down and they have no idea. It's like you're trying to save the whole, the listeners that are listening to this, you're trying to save them. And you just, they, they're stuck in this like world of delusion and then they wake up and then it's like way too late. So how, like, what are you seeing and how do you shake people like, and what maybe explain the one year trap? I mean, I don't know. It's just my, this is, you can tell the passion I've gotten yeah. out of this. It just is infuriating. Yeah. I'll hit a couple of points on this. Um, we'll, we'll hit with a one year trap first. Um, so, so the problem with the one year trap and, and here's what this means, right? So well, we're projecting 20% sales growth over the next year. Why would I sell it now? I'll just wait one more year. And, as an entrepreneur, you've kind of got to be a professional optimist, right? Because mm-hmm. otherwise it's too hard. You've got to believe things that <laughs> so aren't true. true and go make them true. And, and <laughs> so, you, so what that means is you've got to understand your bias. And I see it a little more clearly now um, because as an entrepreneur, I was a professional optimist. Um, as, a, as an investor, I'm a professional skeptic. It's like literally yeah. my job to be yeah. a disbeliever, which is sort of a drag sometimes, um, cause I'm probably wired a little bit more on, on the optimist end. Um, but, but that's my job. That's what my investors expect is for me to ask questions and, and not believe until proven and all of these things. So here's what happens. You look at your next year's projections. You go, of course, we're going to make those. <laughs> yeah, maybe, yeah. maybe, and maybe the uh, acquirer that is the perfect fit for you isn't going to be in a place to acquire then, but they are now. So the story I was talking about earlier where we had the perfect acquire, everything was done. Everything was awesome. Like I couldn't have asked for a better case study for this book, but here's what happened. We were supposed to close on a Friday. It was coming, our sign on a Friday. Now we were both public companies, so it was going to take a little while to close, but like the last document was coming on this Friday. That weekend they merged with their largest competitor and our deal was off. These are big companies. It. it was over compact five. and H- HP, right? I mean, this yeah, is like- <laughs> yeah. This was the compact and HP merger, so it was over. My billion dollar transaction was gone. Bye, and that was it. Was never coming back. So, one week, just one week, would have made the difference between that happening and not happening. So let's talk about one more year and all of the things that can happen in one more year. 
Now, if you can't get enough of what you want for all your stakeholders to get a good outcome now, then maybe you wait one more year. But it's real easy to get in this mode of like hyper optimism. Everything's going well and one more year. And, and so here's this funny dynamic. Like in, in a lot of sales processes, like everybody's talking about trailing earnings and trailing EBITDA. And so you want to do one more year. But really all that stuff in the past is just to get comfortable with what the future might be like. So your acquirer should be, while everybody's talking about the historical growth rates and historical earnings and revenue and all that stuff, that's not what they're buying. They don't get that. They get the future. And so the believability about your future should be priced into it. So you're going to kind of already get paid for that. Now, if it's not believable, if I say, hey, what's your plan to grow 20% next year? You're like, well, we don't really have one. It just keeps happening. That's probably lower probability assigned to that then well here's our marketing plan and so far every time we do 11 of these we get six sales and or if we hire salespeople, it takes them six months to get the quota and like if you've got a plan about how you grow it's much more credible and you're more likely to get compensated for it um, but this one more year trap like when does it stop you go well just one more year well just one more year and so my questions to you are like how much is enough right from an economic perspective there's a point at which money has a, a real diminishing utility unless you're yacht poor and you're like well i just need a bigger yacht then fine wait one more <laughs> yacht poor, um, <laughs> that's not my crowd those are my right. friends that's not not <laughs> how i'm wired in the world and so you go like when does that end and so here's this is where it ties into the other piece so, so my my caution there is like it's cool to be an optimist don't be greedy right if you have a great opportunity in front of you seriously consider taking it because the wait in one more year it maybe it works and as a CEO who's been through the dot-com crash, had half my customer base disappear, got a bowl of 9-11 after that. Got a bowl um, of <laughs> and, and then, you know, seven years later had the financial crisis. Like, these things really happen, and you can't predict them, but you can't expect them. And you don't know when they're going to happen. So you can't mm -hmm. be pessimistic about it, but you just got to be realistic. Like, oops, the world changes, stuff happens, industries change dramatically. How about this? I've got a friend who's in the taxi business. Yeah. 10 years ago, the taxi business was extraordinary. These are near monopolies or oligopolies in every city. Like it was very difficult to get into. But once you were in it, you had what you had. And they're very profitable businesses 10 years ago. Anybody want to be in the taxi business today? <laughs> right. Like the ride sharing thing has just crushed the, there's nothing like, who wants to take a cab now? Like maybe, maybe in Manhattan, but like nowhere else in the country right. would anyone take a cab. Why would I like push the button? The Uber guy shows up, the Lyft guy shows up. I'm off on my way. So ask that guy about one more year. There was a, there's a, <laughs> my favorite video of uh, Gary Vanderchuk. He was a, uh, he said there was some a-hole that bought 10,000 horses right as the first Ford truck rolled off the lot. <laughs> yes. Um, yeah, so, so just be careful with the one more year thing. If you're clear about what you want and it appears that you're going to get it or get most of it, just be careful with that. So I don't know many CEOs, and the real answer is I, I can't think of any, who say, well, you know, God, if I had just waited one more year, I'd be happier. Where, where is that person? I want to meet them. Now, I met a lot of people that said, I almost had a deal done that was going to be a great outcome and something bad happened in the middle of it all. 
or I was thinking about doing it next year and something bad happened and I spent the next five years rebuilding. Right? So sometimes a one year thing can turn into, whoop, it's not one more year, it's five more years because something happens. Well, it's I got crazy. a friend who in the middle of the process, their largest customer changed how they did business with them. And so their earnings got cut in half. Right. I mean, it's business Oops. is fickle. Business is fickle. And like, hey, do you think, so here's an analogy I gave and I've been, my listeners are probably annoyed with me, but like, you know, once you go through a sales, Sonny, it's like, I, I equate it to like the matrix when Neo all of a sudden sees the zeros <laughs> and ones and he sees the zeros and ones and he grabs the bullet and he's like, Oh, this is how it works. We're like, you know, cause you don't have to be as blind in, you know, convincing yourself that everything's fine. Cause you have to be somewhat nuts to, you know, be an entrepreneur. And like, when you kind of come out the other side, you go like the seeing the zeros and ones in my thought process is like having the ability to have a foot in each bucket, which is the growth bucket. You're continuously being optimistic, but you've got a bucket in the, Hey, something could happen. And I have to be realistic about this stuff. And that foot in the realistic bucket, I don't see a lot of entrepreneurs. You're just like, hey, this is great. This is great. I'm like, but wouldn't you want to be ready because you have the highest probability of getting your outcome and the right buyer that has the purpose and the vision of yourself? It's like, it just, it's almost a definite, I don't know. I just don't know why people don't want to do that more. (laughs) If you don't know what the perfect investor or acquirer looks like, how will you know if you find them? Yep. And so- so there's no downside to knowing what you want. And in fact, if you know what you want, you're more likely to get it. And as it turns out, the same behaviors that get you ready for a sale or an investment actually make your business better. So as an example, I, I think you cover this in, in your book. I covered in mine as well. Like businesses that run without the founder or without the CEO or owner are more valuable than ones that require them. Like if you have a line of people at your door, your company is not worth as much as somebody who doesn't. Mm-hmm. Well, you want that anyway, whether you're selling tomorrow or not, you have a better business if you've got good systems and processes and you can generate results without your personal hands-on involvement. doesn't mean you don't get involved, but if every business process runs across your desk, it's, it's worth more to you even if you just continue to own it and don't sell it. So none of these behaviors take away from just continuing on with your business. They support it anyway. So why not have a better business and be more ready so that if you get what you want, like if you have the opportunity to get what you want, you know that you had it. Like who wants to have the story? Wow, that acquirer that called five years ago would have been the perfect fit if I had just said yes. I didn't know what I wanted. And now I'm left with few choices. Like don't don't be that guy. Like we can do better than that. And so what do you think about the the, the fear of addressing this stuff? Do you think there's like a huge fear and denial part of this of like, hey, I just don't want to deal with this stuff. So and I don't want to know what I don't want to know. The first time I sold my company, I was deathly ill from the process, like 102 fever, pale, sweating. I had no idea. I didn't expect any of this like physiological response to this thing. I had no idea. And so what's tough about all this is sometimes it feels like I'm talking about life insurance. Like who wants to talk about life insurance? <laughs> it's so true. No, or like, estate planning or whatever, right? Yeah. <laughs> but like everybody's going to die. And you should probably talk about estate planning and life insurance, but I don't really want to talk about it right now because the subject is uncomfortable and it'll come later. And I promise you, I can guarantee this. Everybody who owns a business today, someday somebody else is going to run it. If it stays around. Do you want that to be on your terms or do you want it to just happen? And if you want it to be on your terms, then 
get this stuff ready. But you go, oh, I'll never sell. Well, no, you may not. You may have your business stuck in probate for a year and a half and then finally end up in the hands of your spouse who wasn't involved in the business and has no idea what to do with the shell of what's left because every process ran through your, like, what, like who wants to leave that as their legacy? They left me a business that didn't run without them. I didn't know what to do with. Like, don't, don't do that. I know. Um, so it's unrealistic to think that you're never going to sell because even the process of, tra- well, I'm going to give it to my kids. Um, okay. It's the same process, right? You still have values and purpose and all of these things that you want to carry on through that process. And so you've got to be clear about how you want that to transition to them and how, what you want for all of the stakeholders in that process. And so even if, Hey, it's a family business, it's you know never leaving the family. You still got to do the same stuff and you go, yeah, you can do it tomorrow. Um, and I had a friend who was one of the most fit people I know who was 50 fell down dead, just fell down dead. That was it. He had the sudden heart attack gene. Guy probably ran 25 miles a week. Ate like, basically ate alfalfa sprouts. That's like, <laughs> oh, yeah. Amazing, like fitness. There's no way I could sort of live up to the way the guy lived his life in terms of fitness. But, you know, it's like life happens. So I don't want to be overly pessimistic about all this stuff. Like no one really wants to talk about the end and all that stuff. But the point is like all of this is an inevitability. And if the same behaviors that make your company more valuable, make it more likely to transition in a good way to whatever the next spot is and make it more likely for you to get what you want for you and all of your stakeholders. Like, why not do it? And the answer before was, well, I don't know what to do. And that was part of the idea behind the book. Like I wanted to write the book that I wish I could have read myself 20 years ago. Mm -hmm. Because if I had known this stuff, I probably would have gotten a different outcome. You got that right. I got 160, 100, 170 now with you podcast that I wish I would have listened to before we sold. That's <laughs> <laughs> what is the? What do you think the the um, the fear is with a, like? And I don't know if you've talked to owners that you've purchased or talked to. Or what do you think the fear is with owners talking to their executives about this stuff? Because like, in my one fun, fun, funny, funny story is there's a gentleman that. Uh, was looking to sell in the service space. And he's like, I don't want anybody to know I'm selling. I'm like, Doug, everybody knows you're 73. (laughs) (laughs) It's like, I don't know what else to say, man. Like you're going to like, everybody knows that. So, you know, what are people doing to like break through that BS and this like voodoo about talking about exes? I literally was doing this presentation. They said, take, exit out of your it's growth and exit framework. And they said, take exit out. I'm like, well, that's part of it. You have to do both at the same time. And it's just like so weird. So what do you, what are you seeing that owners are doing to communicate with their executives or the people that are the immediate stakeholders with them? Yeah. So not to repeat the obvious, but if you are clear about what you want for your stakeholders, that's a great place to start with them to say, look, right. Someday we may have like right now I own the whole thing. Um, or we own it together. And that's part of one of the gaps comes when your executive team doesn't have any equity. It makes it very difficult because like there's nothing in it for them. At first glance, for most people, um, unless you own equity, a transaction is just risk. It's Their starting place is not going to be, look at this great opportunity. Their starting place is going to be, will I still have a job? Mm-hmm. So if you've got a bunch of executives that don't have employment agreements, which means they could get fired the next day by the acquirer 
and they're just on the street and no equity. So a transaction just means they do more work and maybe their reward is they get thrown out on their ear. Like, why would they want to be excited about that? So it's, it's reasonable to be hesitant about talking to your team about it, but you kind of have to. So a way to start that is, hey, let's figure out who we care about and why. And if we ever did a transaction, what would we want for them? So like, this is the point being, don't do this at the last minute. Like, Start thinking about it now and talking about it now. And maybe your executives would tell you what they want, right? If, if you went into the possible sale of your business and your senior team had been clear about, hey, here's what I would like to see in one of these maybe it turns out to be a great thing for them too. And you can engage them in the conversation and engage them in the process. Um, but the reason to be scared of it is it represents risk mostly for them mm-hmm. unless you've gotten out in front of it. And it represents the potential for some disruption. I've got a story here. There was a, a company that, that we talked to a while ago that, long story short, founder owned 100%. His number two and COO had been promised equity for 20 years. Oh, boy. Oh, I'll get, I'll get that done. I'll get around to it. I'll get that done. Well, when he got in the sale process, all of a sudden the COO was like, man, I still don't have any paperwork. <laughs> well, they never got a sale closed. So where are you now? Sale's not done, and it appears it's not going to happen. And this person that's been working with you for 20 years, you've been promising equity, still doesn't have any paperwork. How are they feeling about the relationship and how much is their head in the game right right now? And that's your own fault. It didn't have to be that way. Totally agree. And there are lots of, I see this common pattern where they're like, well, you know, just trust me. It doesn't mean they don't trust you. Um, It just, they take all the risk and get no extra reward for that. And so like, don't, don't go into a process like that. And so, so the problem is, and the reason people don't want to talk about it is because it has the potential to be very disruptive for their business. Well, but like you said, the out, the, the outcome is could potentially be worse. And it, you know, it's so funny, right. Sonny, like, and, and like, I'm just, I'm way too much of a, a practical common sense guy. We're like, I'm raising three-year-old twins right now who are absolutely psychotic, but like the number one thing is constantly be clear and give expectations. Like, why should you treat your number two executive any differently? 20 years of promising equity like that. I mean, I see it all the time too, where it's just like, treat them like a normal person. Like, why wouldn't you want clear expectations about how this all works? I mean, it it just, it makes too much sense to me, but you know, everybody's different. Yeah, so the the question that I have, it's a sort of rhetorical question for your listeners is, when you hear us talk about equity for your senior team, you have an emotional response to that. You feel a feeling when you hear us talking about that. Ask yourself why. Like spend a little time figuring out there's something underneath that that's, that's the why behind this. And, and you have to get at that. Because if you don't resolve it, it will still be there. And it won't go away. And you can take a great relationship and have it fall apart with no bad intentions on your part, I want to be clear about this is not about good or bad intentions and what you believe you you'll do. And will you take care of your people when you get a big giant wire, all of those things, this is not about that. This is about what's it like to be on the other side of that conversation. And it's okay to have a little space and time of, Hey, we can't get this nailed down now. 
And I will tell you 20 years is, is too long. So just notice, <laughs> right, if you're a listener and you have an emotional response, oh, I'll never give equity or what. Okay, cool. Just know that you're not going to get through a sale process without people talking to your senior team. That yep. just is not happening. Like there's an occasional outlier. It's don't expect it if you have a company of any size at all. In fact, you're going to spend a lot of time with your executive team and they'll do things like send psychologists to figure out the dynamics of the management team. Like if you start to get some scale in your business, expect yeah. buyers to do things like have industrial psychologists that are trying to understand, Hey, what are the underlying dynamics between the team? And they will find this stuff and unearth it. And so when you go into this process, you need your team to feel good about it. Now I'm not suggesting you share it with the whole company. That's a, a sort of probably a conversation for another day, but because a transaction represents mostly risk for most of your people as they'll begin to perceive it, they may not be ready to engage. I personally would rather just tell the whole company like, hey, here's exactly what's going on um, and why my experience has been that's not helpful to anybody right? Um, because you don't have clarity on how things are going to play out and so forth. But your, your senior team has got to be in the loop. Well, it's interesting too, Sonny, like, and I know we're running short on here on time, but like to... You know, like if you're communicated correctly like that too, and you say, Hey, it's not time right now, but you can pin their phantom equity or phantom, you know, or their, their actual deferred comp or whatever, or equity to value creation. <laughs> so like, let them go get what they deserve. Right. I mean, so you could literally align them together with you towards your ideal outcome. If you, if you communicated it correctly. That's right. Yeah. You actually, as it turns out, you get more alignment mm-hmm. um, when they are actually tied to the equity in a way because then they understand how their contributions matter um, and matter to them and their family. And, and this seems like a technical point, but I've, I've heard an issue with it often enough that it's, I think it's worth making the point. When I'm talking about equity, you don't actually have to give voting shares to mm-hmm. people. Um, in fact, in a lot of cases, that creates more headache than it's worth for them and for you. Your attorney can help you figure out profit shares or options or some flavor of what's effectively phantom equity, which means they get the economic benefit of equity ownership without you losing the governance of owning the whole thing. And them having additional tax consequences for no reason, right? (laughs) They don't want it. Right, all these extra stuff. And so there's a way to get this done. The, The essence of it, though, is let them participate in the value creation in the business economically, but don't get that tied up with governance things. That does make it more complicated. So um, as we're wrapping up here, Sonny, I want to add, I know you wrote a whole book about this topic, but if you were to go back to yourself with your company and sum up your book or your insights about how to change your thoughts on this or like one bit of advice that you would give yourself, how would you summarize it? Figure out who you care about and write it down. And I'm not kidding about the write it down stuff. Something magic happens when you write it down versus, oh, I just know it in my head. So figure out who you care about and write it down. Now figure out what you want for them. What's the optimal future? It's okay to dream here. Of what if, if for every one of these stakeholders, what do I want for them? Do the same thing for yourself and your family. If you get really clear about that, now you're in a position to be able to ask hard questions or complicated questions or uncomfortable questions. And you can use the feedback you get from this reverse due diligence and these uncomfortable questions, plus what it is that you want for all of your stakeholders to actually find the best outcome. And the other thing that happens, and this is, I know I keep hitting on this, it's that important. When you write it down, it will help you in the moment that to come. And the moment will come where 
you're in a room or on a conference call with a bunch of advisors that you paid a bunch of money to give you advice. And they're going to all be steering the ship towards the end that's the highest price and the highest probability of close because that's all they care about. It's their job to only care about that. The only person who's going to care about all of the other things that you care about you, the only person that's going to care about your stakeholders is you. And so your opportunity in the midst of this whirlwind transaction to take a stand for what you care about, that moment will come and I want you to be ready for that moment. Well said. So if our listeners want to get in touch with you, follow you, get your book, consume more content, where should they, where should they go? Yes, sunnyvanderbeck.com. You'll see the assessments there um, as well as some worksheets and links to the book and how to get in touch with me. Sonny, this has absolutely been a blast. Thanks so much for taking the time and coming on the show. Thank you much. I hope you had a couple good takeaways from Sonny's interview. My number one takeaway, and I integrated into our boot camp process and exercises, is make a list of all your stakeholders, suppliers, customers, employees, family, and then what do you want from them in any transition? So who is important to you in that entire ecosystem, and then what do you want for them in any transition? So if you want to do that exercise and learn a ton more, check out our two-day boot camps. I'm telling you, it'll change your life because it's two days to educate yourself so you can control this entire process, regardless if you're five years out, this course will help you calibrate how to focus on value creation, how to have a target exit and a target timeline, how to avoid the one-year trap like Sonny's talking about, and your chances of getting what you want will go through the roof because you're intentionally going and getting it instead of letting something randomly happen to you. Like Sonny said, he thought he had the entire thing situated and sold, and then one One day went by and Compaq was no longer a buyer. So look at how things can just happen and change at the the drop of a dime. So the more you know about how the entire situation and process works and what you want and why you want to go get it, the more you will have an increased probability of going and getting it. So with that being said, check out our boot camps at arcona.io. Otherwise, I will see you next week.